Welcome back to season eight of Talking with Traders. This is the fourth year of this podcast since it began in 2020. Once again, IG Markets have come on board as the sponsor of this podcast. We're truly grateful and privileged to have such a global leader in CFD trading as our sponsors. In the coming weeks, I'll be interviewing various guests from around the globe on the topic of trading. Some of these will be past guests that we invite back onto the podcast, and some will be new guests. The idea is to attract a broad spectrum of different perspectives from players in different areas of the markets. None of what you hear here is financial advice, but it is intended to get you thinking about how you might be able to apply what you hear here to your own trading and investing. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. That way, you'll be notified when new episodes are released. Once again, thank you to IG Markets for sponsoring this podcast into its fourth year. And thank you listeners for your continued support of this podcast. Now let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Talking with Traders. And this week, it is an absolute delight to welcome back a previous guest to the podcast, someone that the listeners absolutely loved listening to last time. His name is Stephen Goldstein. So no stranger to this Talking with Traders podcast. Uh, And Stephen, you've recently launched a new book, written a book and published it, this book, Mastering the Mental Game of Trading. And we're going to talk about that today. It's an absolutely brilliant book. I'm busy reading it right now, and I'm loving every minute of it. I think this is going to be become a classic, I think, and one of those books that I put on the the list of uh, of my books that I like to try and reread every year or so. So welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you. That's a pleasure to be back. And, um, you know, always great to talk to you, Garth. Yeah, thanks, Steve. It's, it's, uh, and, and congratulations on the book. It really is very, very good. And it's very different to any other sort of trading books that I've read before. Um, so it, touches, it touches on a number of the coaching sessions that we did. And just for the listeners who perhaps don't know this, uh, but you know, I was a delegate on your high-performance trading program or your, your high-performance trader coaching program uh, in, I think it was 2022, mm-hmm. 21, 22, that, that sort of time. We were, we were yeah. chatting monthly for about, I think, around about 18 months. We were speaking on a fairly regular basis and going through the program, and it was absolutely fantastic definitely beneficial to my own trading and um and interesting to go through the book and find you know it it re, it, it reminds me it's a refresher of some of the stuff that we did on the coaching program mm-hmm. so it's 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 good and well done i mean it must have taken you quite a long time to write this book right um well <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting one because you know someone asked me that and i said yeah it's taken me nearly 40 years <laughs> that's, that's because my entire trading career my entire entire career as a coach has gone into it but the the actual book itself you know i'd thought about for many years um and then i was approached um about doing it seven years ago by a publisher who who liked some of the themes that i talked about um when he'd seen my writing um and then it was only really during covid you know when suddenly there was a lot of time on my hands and i'm like maybe i'll maybe i'll start working on this now and um, that's when I got it. And it, it took about, I would say, probably about 18 months of planning and then about a year to write. Yeah. So it was mostly the planning that was that took most of the time. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's very good. And congrats. It's, I'm really enjoying it, as I say. Um, and I know that the sales have been going quite well, I think, because I've been watching your tweets on Twitter or on X <laughs> as it is now. And I know you've been saying it's been at the, the number one seller in, uh, I think, the finance section on Amazon for a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, well, it's well somewhere near the top. I mean, it's um, it's uh, it's not. It's really strange because it's not on my. It's not my nature to sort of brag about things. Um, I think us traders hate sort of bragging, and uh, we generally like to stay humble. But my my publishers sort of been saying, now you've got to tweet all the time how it's doing. You've got to okay. you've got to be on it on LinkedIn, and and so I, I've been sort of following their advice against my my nature and sort of just pumping it out there. Okay. All right. Well, it doesn't come across as braggy at all. It just comes across as, you know, your book's doing well and it deserves to do well. So, so good. We're going to talk a bit about the book on the podcast now and, uh, and discuss a couple of things in it without giving away too much. Obviously, I think listeners to this podcast really should buy themselves a copy of the book and read it because it's, it's just distilled wisdom like nothing else. Um, but one of the aspects that I want to start with this discussion about is, Effectively, I'm going to just actually show the diagram on this page of the book. Um, if viewers can see that on YouTube, and obviously, if you're not watching on YouTube, you're listening to this on a on a podcast app. Then, of course, you're not going to see what I just put up there. But essentially, what it is, it's the performance process cycle, which is something that you know, obviously, you and I worked on a lot during the coaching session. Mm. I, I really, really love this because it just takes you through, you know, the life cycle of a trade and mm-hmm. and the, the different stages that a that a trader needs to go through. Now, now I want to talk to you about each of these different stages, but to sort of set the set the scene, I suppose. Those of you who are watching the video will have seen the the diagram, but those who, who are just listening to the audio, effectively, it's a it's a circular diagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of it a little bit like a compass or perhaps like a clock. And at the bottom, let's say six o'clock, you've got what's called reset, which is almost like your starting point of a trade. Then if you go up clockwise to nine o'clock, you've got what is called a trigger, trigger mm-hmm. point. Then you go further around clockwise to the top, 12 o'clock, you get to the point where it's act. And then you go around the clockwise again to three o'clock, outcome. And then you continue down back to six o'clock, which is reset. So effectively, this is describing the process of a trade where you go from your, you know, where you're not in a trade, you're in this reset position. Then you move up to trigger, what triggers a trade, then you act, act, do the trade, and then you're waiting for the outcome. And once mm. the outcome is complete, then there's a, a, a position, a point of having to, to let go, I suppose, and get back into that neutral position and reset. And in my mind, I kind of visualize this thing going round and round, almost like if you've ever done a um, a time lapse photo on your iPhone, you see the little the little wheel going round and round, and starts and you know it starts again at the bottom and goes round and round. So I kind of think of it like that. Now that's the process that these that, that we're looking at in terms of actual yeah. individual trades, right? So I, I want to talk to you about each of the steps. I mean, we start with reset, so we're not we're, we're at a starting point. We don't. We're not in a position. We now are seeking out the market, looking for the next opportunity. You know, where does one's mindset really need to be? I guess in that position before you, you you're not in a trade. Let's just assume you're in cash. You're waiting for yeah. your next opportunity. Yeah. Well, you, you could think of it in many ways. You could think think of it as starting your day before you walk in. Yeah. You could think of it as you know you're managing a whole portfolio of trades and you want to get yourself in the right state. Mm-hmm. 
at the beginning of the week or the beginning of the day, or you can think about it as like one single trade or one single moment in the trade. Mm. And if you think about it, you, you want to, before you do any trade, before you do anything, you want to be in the complete right mental state to succeed. You think of like a performer, okay? Yeah. You're, you're, you're about to engage with the market. You have a process for engaging with the market. You have a process for finding value. You have a process for monetizing that value. If you come into that in the incorrect state, you're going to make that suboptimal the way you're going to do it. If you come in in, a, in an optimal state, on the other hand, you're more likely to do it well. You're more likely to do a whole series than well, or even a whole day or week of them well. It's like just being in the right state for trading. Mm-hmm. You come in with an open mind. If you come in with biases, if you come in with old beliefs, if you're holding on to an old view, or you're holding on to some sort of regret, or even some sort of, you know, overconfidence because you had a great outcome, you're going to come into the next trade suboptimal. I mean, just think think of the trade like at this point, your trade is a blank sheet. Okay. You've got a blank sheet with no idea of what you're going to do on the market, you know, on whatever happens in the market. You want to be ready to go. Okay. You first of all, you want to be immersing yourself in the market. You have to be immersed. Okay. And you have to sense the market. Okay. And you have to be up to date with the news, the price action, the stories, the narrative, what's driving markets, the sentiment. You want to be on top of all that. You don't just want to walk in and go, okay, let's just get along. Yeah. Why? Maybe you're holding an old belief that the market's just going up mm. or down, whatever it is. You, 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 you've come in and you've not gone into the market and gone, right, what's happening today? You know, you, you, you've just gone in there and straight away you're corrupting your chances of success. And now I'm talking about an ideal state. To be in an ideal state, the use of the word ideal, is rare. But you want to get as close to that as possible. But if you yeah. think about your trading on the 1st of January normally, yeah, you've had a couple of weeks off. Mm-hmm. You've closed down your books. You've reduced your risk. When you've had a good year or a bad year, your mind eases a little bit. Yeah. Okay, you spend a couple of weeks with your friends, your family, just not really looking at the market, maybe half a glance every now and then. Okay. And then you walk in, you know, Jan 1, and you're ready to go and you start doing everything. You don't just rush in there and put the first trade on. Normally, you would normally, you know, just let, let's do a reread of the news, the information, what's driving markets. Let's resync. Yeah. Let's resync. Let's reconnect with the markets. Yeah. Okay. Let's give it a time for, a, you know, the first trade to come along. And you don't have a view and you allow it to come to you. You know, you're more likely to do well. You may not get the first trade right, but you may actually just get out of it well. You may, you know, you put the right level of risk on, you you, you manage the stop, you get out of the stop. You know, you might have a portfolio that's already running that you decide, you know, to add to it, to hedge it. You're coming in ready for the trade. You haven't even taken the trade yet at this point. Yeah. You're getting yourself in the right state. You're asking the right questions of the market. You're, you're, you're practicing something which I call detached curiosity. Yeah. Now, that's a super skill of the very best traders. Okay. That's getting yourself present to the market. It's asking questions of what you're seeing and hearing, not just accepting it, 
not just saying, okay, this is going up, but what does that mean? You know, we're on a bullish stance here, mm. AB. What does that mean for how I'm going to trade, how I'm going to engage with the market? Let's find out a little bit more. Let's ask questions about, let's go deep. That's detached curiosity. You don't hold a view, but you ask questions, you see what comes back, and then you ask more questions. And that really allows you to go deep into the market and be prepared for whatever is coming your way next. Right. Trigger is. Yeah. Okay. So that's great. So, I mean, as you say, you come in, you're in the right state, you're sort of in a neutral state, I guess. Um, and as you say, ready for that that curiosity uh, yeah. to to spot opportunities. The next step in the in this performance uh, cycle is is the trigger. So that's where what you've now spotted something in the market that meets your system and tweaks yeah, we, your interest. And whatever it is depends on your process. Whatever your yeah. process is, yeah, yeah. So some people will be day traders. Some people will be longer term traders. Some will, you know, have a convergence strategy or a divergence strategy. You know, some people will be managing a portfolio, you know, that's got a, a certain direction to it. Or, you know, what? It, there are so many different types of trading. But the trigger is something that takes you into a deeper sense of, okay, I, I probably need to do something now. Right. You know, it could be a hedging need. It could be a need to close something out. Right. Whatever it is, something has triggered you. Research, story, news, data, maybe just some reflection, Maybe a, a comment from a from someone you know, you know it, it, anything that has suddenly take you into a deeper sense of, you know, okay, something is happening here. The, the the word I use at this point is sense making. We're trying to make sense of whatever it was that triggered us, or whatever has been happening out there, so that we can now build a story, a narrative. Maybe it's a trade idea. Maybe it's just a simple break of a level, and that's your system, and it's. Let's go, let's buy, let's hit the F5 key. You make a very simple trade process. Right. Um, but generally, I think of sense making as okay, what does this mean now? What is the story? What's the idea? What's the narrative? You've got that blank sheet of paper and you're starting to put some lines on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're starting to develop a story of what you want to do. And then we move forward with that story, even before we've traded yet, to now go, okay, how does that work? with me as a trader how does that work with my playbook mm. or playbooks yes okay yes. some people have multiple playbooks some people have a simple single playbook um that playbook usually exists in your mind some people will have a whole set of rules they've written down okay um but it's now does that match my playbook it's a very simple example let's just say that you've got um a bullish scenario forming in the market that you're following and let's say that you like to do a i, I don't know you, you look for a risk reward of five to one before entering the market right so you look at the market you look at the narrative you look at the story you make an assessment and you go okay that's got for me that's got a five to one return that that possible trade mm. that's my playbook and it fits with it. this is what i call playbook matching okay. it matches my playbook Therefore, I'm now ready to move towards a trade. If you assess it's got a three to one probability, okay, then you go, okay, I'm not going to take it. It's just a very simple rule. Mm. You know, I'm not saying you should have a three to one or a five to one. You know, I, 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 I may have had when I traded a five to one rule in certain scenarios, if it, say if it was against the trend um, or against the momentum, but if it was perhaps with momentum, I might do a, an evens trade. 
Right. You know, because I'm like, oh, okay, it's an evens trade, but it's got five times as much chances going up 100 points as it does of going down 100 points. So for me, it was kind of a, a five to one trade. So that's because it's where pro trends. You're, you're, you're matching your playbook now. Does this sort of trade suit you as a trade? And then if it suits you as that sort of trade, you start planning for it. So you're still in the sense of the production. This is the second quadrant. Yes. It's called the production phase. This is where the trade is produced mm. or the hedge is produced or the idea is produced. And it sounds like I'm talking about, you know, this could be something which happens over days and weeks or hours. It could be something that happens in seconds. So, yes. you know, it's, it's all in your head. Yeah. But it's the process of what you go through at this stage of, okay, that's what I want to do. This is the size I want to do. So depending on your process, um, you know, you, you you start thinking, you know, what you're going to do when you go into the trade. What's the plan for it? What's the contingencies for it? You know, are you going to, where are you going to exit if you're wrong? Where are you going to exit if you're right? You know, that, that often goes into the planning part. Yeah. But also things like, you know, where are you going to add? Will you add? Will you have an adding strategy? Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Um, or is it one of those strategies, and we, we can go back, I think we'll talk about this a bit later, later with house and player. Um, is it a strategy where you just are assessing the situation as you go along? You get long, you like the long story, you don't really have a target, but you know, you 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 will have a, a some sort of getting out strategy at some point and you'll yeah. just work that out when you're in it. So mm-hmm. it all depends. But at the moment you've got some sort of plan. It doesn't have to be a hard and fast plan. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes they are, sometimes it's just but this is what we intend to do when we get into the trade. Right. Okay. So that's that's the Production phase, yeah, and you haven't got the trade on yet. No, okay, <laughs> all right, but you so you've still got a lot of mental capital at this point. Yes, a big part of this process cycle is building and then maintaining mental capital because this is the most important capital you can have. It's far more important than the physical capital mm. of money. Yes, okay, mm. both are important, and you've got to preserve both. So at this point, you haven't eroded your mental capital ideally. You built it up in the being phase, and you're you're using it for the production of the trade. Right. Okay. And then we go over to the performance. Quadrant. Yeah. So this Third is the, the the top of the clock. If is it, we go past the act point, and we now yeah. have the point between act and outcome. This is like between twelve o'clock and three o'clock. Yeah. On the, on the cycle, right? Yeah. The act point is where you actually decide to do something. Or you might have decided to do nothing. That is an act in itself because mm. that has consequences as well. Right. Um, it, it, once once you've hit the trigger, okay, you'll either do something or you'll do nothing. Okay? Yeah. They both have consequences. Mm. The act takes us into the trade. Okay? A- and vast amounts of physical capital and mental capital are drained at this point. When you go into the trade, if you do it badly, if you don't follow process, if you don't follow your plan, okay? Yeah. And then it, the, the way I like to talk about it is, you know, it's it's a difference between walking on a, say, a four-inch beam two feet off the ground, yeah, okay, which is where you were planning what to do, yeah. and then suddenly the ground disappearing, and now you're 200 feet above the ground. Yeah. You change psychologically when you've got risk on Mm. okay you become in a way a different person 
It's like there's another version of you is taken over. Your ego becomes agitated. You become highly emotional. You become aware of danger, of threat. You can't become hyper aware of it. And you also become hyper aware of the opportunity. And you, you so everything goes to extremes during this performance phase, that the bit from 12 o'clock to three o'clock. Okay. I, I, I like to think of it as a little bit like imagining that you as a young person learning to sing. Right. Okay. And now you're out on stage doing it for real in front of hundreds of people. Yeah. And the risk of your voice going or you freezing or you forgetting your words, even though you've practiced and practiced and practiced, okay, during the production phase, yeah. things get real out there. So so even though no one's watching us, our mind acts as if we are being watched. Mm. We are actually watching ourselves. Yeah. We are judging ourselves. Okay. And that happens in this phase. And that's why so many of us struggle in the performance phase. And everyone does to a degree. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, think that that's why trading is so hard. Because you know, even if you have a plan, as Mike Tyson said, you know, everyone has a plan so they get punched in the face. Yeah. <laughs> but you still need that plan. It's, mm. it's going to help you get through it better than you don't have one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. You can refer back to it. Yes. You know, um, you, you can remind yourself of it and you have a bigger plan for when you do fall flat. Okay. Right. Um, so we're now in the performance phase. This is where it gets tricky. Our emotions, like we say, are out there. And then, the final phase, the fourth quadrant, that's the letting go phase. Mm. So this is now get. when you've had your outcome. You've yeah, when you've got to an outcome. Yeah, be so it win or loss. Whatever happened in that phase, you get to the outcome. Now, if you don't go through the letting go phase, okay, mm. and you don't engage with it properly, and you don't come back to reset, what's going to happen is you're going to go back and short circuit the cycle yeah. and go straight back, missing out the next being phase and the next production phase, and you rush back into the trade. Yeah. And then you would do that again and again and repeat that behavior, which is suboptimal. Mm -hmm. So you're in a suboptimal, I call it the death spiral, yeah. where you're just repeating bad behaviors, bad practices over and over again. Yeah. Okay. That's why this fourth quadrant is so important, this letting go phase between you'd be looking at sort of three o'clock and six o'clock. Yes. And what I've noticed over the years is the masters of trading, the very best traders, they are the guys who are best in the letting go phase right. and the guys and the, the, the guys and girls, if you want to use the phrase, yes. Yes. Um, through the letting go phase. They just, and, and it is so hard to do. It's, it sounds like it's just something that's psychological, um, but it, it really is so difficult. What's happening in the performance phase is all your psychological capital, your mental capital has been drained away through that experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as you become caught in that spiral, you become owned by the market and you're doing everything the market wants you to do, which is everything that you shouldn't be doing. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it's the only way out is, is to go through that letting go phase, which is to get closure on what's happened. Mm. to then review what's happened, to be compassionate to yourself in reviewing what's happened, mm. 
um, to accept your vulnerability in that moment and to then give yourself a break, yeah. learn from it, and then just let it go and move on yeah. and get back to the being phase. Yeah, so then you get the superpower is. Right, and then we're back to six o'clock, back to where we started, back to that reset phase, where, as you say, you want to try and get into that perfect state to be ready for the next yes. trade so yeah. that you're doing it without any, as you say, any biases or carrying any regret from a past trade and all of that sort of thing. Regret, guilt, you know, yeah. or overconfidence. Yeah, know, yeah. That, that could you also know, You've had a great outcome and you're like, you know, I'm the greatest, but actually you might have got lucky and you might have actually done everything really badly. Yeah. But then you sort of believe your own publicity. Right. Yeah. So then you're coming. Humility is so important in yeah. this, this sort of being phase. And my traders love to develop humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's funny that you say, well, funny, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, in my experience, also working with traders, and I know you you obviously work with far, far bigger traders, more successful traders than, in, in many respects than what I do. But um they the ones that that I find are very successful are quite even keeled. They it's not to say they don't have emotions, they do, but but they seem to be more in control of their emotions and they're quite even keeled. So they manage to do that. They do that letting go of process well, get back to that being phase as you refer to it, and be ready to take up the next trading opportunity or to be available to the next opportunities without carrying too much baggage from the past. Yeah. Yeah, we're to try and to try and do that at the very best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I want to also then talk about what you reference in the book as the behavioral gap, and this is an yeah. interesting concept. Effectively, it's the the behavioral gap is in in a nutshell the difference between what you're capable of achieving and what you actually achieve in your trading, and yeah. you know the the wider that gap, obviously more likely it is you're doing something wrong. Maybe you're not following this performance process cycle properly. You're not, you know, you, you're doing a number of things wrong. And I guess the the ideal is to try and narrow that behavioral gap as much as possible. Yeah. 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 Well, you, you can think of it as, you know, we, we all learn a system or we all learn a method for finding value. Um, and then we all learn a, a strategy or a set of strategies and tactics for how we monetize that value, mm. okay? Um, and most of us, or most of the systems we use, have the potential to make a lot of money, mm. okay? Um, and if you were to just paper trade them, you probably would make a lot of money. Yeah. But you have no emotion and no ego mm. in that process. Yeah. Um, so so you can think of it as like that That top line on the graph is, is what you could make in theory. What you do make is often a lot less, yeah. and often it could be negative even. Yes. And that's because the difference, particularly in that performance phase, okay, when the trade is on, you know, when when that sort of four-inch beam is raised to 200 feet, mm. we won't follow that process. We get thrown off it. We don't do the things very well that we know we could do. Yeah. And that gives you that performance gap or that behavioral gap. Mm. And that's what we're working to try and reduce, try and eliminate, to try and get closer to that potential. Mm. You know, so that's what the process is all about. Can we close that performance gap? You know, can we improve how we monetize the ideas we had 
have, how we conduct ourselves during that period. Right. You know, can we do what we say we theoretically could do? That's yeah. that's the battle. That's, yeah. that's why in the book I say it's not the markets we conquer, really. It, it's ourselves. We have the tools. We have the systems. We have the methods. Yeah. We have the strategies to win in the markets. It's just our inability to actually follow them and stay with them and put them on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to read a, a, a section out of the book. Um, I'm just go and find it. It's page 63 of the book because I really love this story. So, I mean, I'm going to read. It's probably going to take me a minute or two to read this, but this is okay. It'll give the listeners uh, an, an idea of the, you know, the style of writing and the kind of things they can expect when they buy the book and read it. So, here we go. <clears throat> uh, Yumiko was an ethics trader at a London bank. During a coaching session, she shared with me the details of a trade she had taken in the summer of 2014 and the frustration that it caused her. Yumiko had mentioned to her colleagues that she was bullish on the US dollar Japanese yen exchange rate and believed it could head higher from 102 to 120 yen to the dollar in the second half of the year. She decided to back her call and in July, she bought $25 million of USD yen at 102. She held the position for a few weeks, the longest she had ever run a trade. By early September, the trade started moving in the right direction, hitting 105. Although Yumiko was in profit over $700,000 on the trade, her natural inclination was to actively trade in and out around volatile market events. She was a classic house approach spot FX trader. Running positions for long periods was not her forte. Ahead of that month's U.S. non-farm payroll data release, she decided to book the profit she had on the USD yen at 105. With volatility increasing after the release of the non-farm payroll data, the USD yen started trending higher. Yumiko was now frustrated that she had booked her profit rather than sitting with the trade. As it moved higher still, she decided to fight this rally, which contradicted the long-term view she had expressed. She initially shorted the USD yen at 107. Within a couple of days, it was trading at 108, and she had to cut the short. Her, attempt, her attempts to short continued over the next few weeks, sometimes getting the timing right, but mostly losing money. Often, she would sell a rally, then be forced to buy it back again higher up. She never reinstated the long trade. The USD yen hit 120 in December, which was her target. Had Yomika stayed with the trading plan she had, she would have made over $3.5 million on the trade. Instead, with all the failed attempts to trade around it, she had lost money. Worse still was the damage it did to her mindset, which caused her to cannibalize her normal trading approach and thus pass up many other short-term trading opportunities. Okay, so, I mean, it's just such an interesting passage, and I think many listeners will resonate with that and, and, and relate to that story where you know you can spot something in your being state and uh and 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 your 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 analysis ultimately ends up being right but you don't make money on the trade or you even lose money as that was the case here um and that's that behavioral gap right yeah yeah i mean there's a couple of things to talk about here one is the behavioral gap um but there was also a point in there uh, about house um the house approach to trading versus the player approach to trading, which I know we want to talk about as well. But I mean, this is a story that so many will resonate with, right? And I'm sure you've come across it at many of your clients as, as coaching clients that 
and I know I've experienced this similar story myself, and it's very mm. frustrating. When let's talk about um, the, the, the 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 what she was doing here essentially was, I guess, not not sticking to the type of approach that she was good at in her trading. There's the house approach, which we let's talk about that now. House approach versus player approach. Um, maybe you tell us rather than because you wrote the book and you've written about it, but <laughs> I mean, I can talk, I can talk, but we, we, I'm interviewing you, Stephen. Let's talk about the difference quickly between house approach and player approach and then relate it back to this particular story. Okay. So, so I, I want to start with something first of all, actually, okay. um, you know, we often get very confused what our job is as a trader. You know, we, we get into the, the idea of, of we get into kind of the analytical state where we try to predict the market. And then what happens is we then try to trade that prediction. Mm -hmm. OK, and that's not often what our job is. OK, mm. our job is to actually find a method or a strategy to make market to make money from the ebbs and flows or the volatility and movement or the mispricing of markets. So you have to know which one you're doing. Okay. And, and Yumiko actually got confused between the two. Okay. But the, the, the challenge is made much harder because we are trying to do both all the time, but we don't often know what the job is. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't even realize what the game we're playing is most of the time yeah. um you know I, I was recently watching um uh the, the uh or started watching i never finished it um the uh i can't remember it's it's, it's not it, it's the the film not the big short the other one by the liars pokers live pokers guy um, okay run about uh, baseball Moneyball. Moneyball. Money yes. Yeah. So you've got to excuse my memory listeners it just <laughs> tends to go quite often um <laughs> So I was watching Moneyball, and there was this, there was this quote at the very beginning of it, which, uh, which I missed on the probably four other occasions that I'd seen it. Okay, and um, it, it, it was, I can't, I can't even, I did make a note of it, um, <laughs> but it, it was along the lines of, you know, most of us. It was a baseball player who played the game for twenty five years. I think it's, I can't remember his name, but he said. Most of us don't even know the game we're playing all of our life until many years later right. and we look back on it. Yeah. So something along those lines. Um, and that's the game that we're doing when we're trading. We just go out and we do it. So if we get back to this example, okay, she was confused between two different sides of the game of trading. So the analogy and the metaphor I'm going to bring in now is a metaphor around blackjack. Yeah. So if you think of the game of blackjack, how do you play it? Okay. Now, most people are probably listening there and they go, well, you do this, 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 and this. You sit at the table, you get dealt a card, you look at the card, you know whether it's likely to win or not, and you place a bet on it. Mm. Okay. Um, now, what if you're the other side of the table, though? What if you're at a house? What if you're at a dealer? Yeah. How do you play the game then? And it's a different game. Mm. Okay, you are playing in the same game against the other people, but you're not playing it in the same way. Okay, so if you're the dealer, 
you're playing on behalf of the house, the casino. Right. Okay. They've sat you in that seat. Okay. And your expectations from the game are very different to the expectations from the person opposite you. Even though the two of you are playing against each other, the game is rigged in the favour of the house. Mm. Okay. The house has a positive expectancy. Okay. I believe it's around about 2% in blackjack. Mm. And it has to be that because the house isn't going to make the game unless they're rewarded for taking the risk and the effort that goes into making the game. You know, running a casino is an expensive business. Mm. Okay. So to make the game for the players, they must get rewarded. And the structure of the game is set up such that, you know, the player always plays first. They're more likely to bust first, which means the money then goes to the house. And that's, that's where the house's edge comes from in blackjack. Um, plus a few other things, but it's mostly that. That means if you're playing against the house, by the way, you on average have a negative 2% edge. You have a negative expectancy. The house has a positive expectancy. Okay. So the dealer is playing for the house. Okay. And they have to play the house's system. They will be taught the system they have to play for the house. They don't take on every single player. They don't play against them their view of what they think they have to play. They are told how they have to play the game and they follow that system and that monetizes that 2% edge over time. They will have losses, sometimes quite big losses, because they might play against a lucky player or a smart player. And and that player could be playing with a lot of money on the table. But over time, they're going to aggregate a profit as long as they follow that system. The player on the other side, as we said, he has a negative or she has a negative expectancy of about 2%. Okay, so if they just play as they should, as they try to, even better players will still have a negative expectancy. Mm-hmm. There is one exception. Actually, there's two exceptions to that. One is to cheat um, in some way. Yeah. And the other way is to card count, Yeah, which casinos will often say it's cheating, but... It's not. It's just. Uh, it just means that you're finding a way, a method that can tip the odds back in your favour so you can win. Yeah. Okay. And card counting is. It's quite easy to do in theory. It's very difficult to do in practice. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about trying to sort of, you know, tote up the value of the cards after the deal to work out what's the shape of the remainder of the pack, uh, which is what you're trying to do. It's then also betting more aggressively when you've worked out that you've got a favourable count. Okay, so you go large. You don't go all in because you still have to use the principles of money management. Yeah. But when you've suddenly got a count in your favour, you go large. Otherwise, you complete. You constantly play small when the edge is against you. You try and play smartly when the edge is against you to minimum any, any, any sort of uh, slippage against you. But you will have slippage until you get a favourable setup. Yeah. Okay. And there's no guarantee you're going to win. That's why you use money management. Yeah. Just the odds are suddenly in your favour. Um, now, trading is the same. You're playing against the house. Yeah. Okay. You're playing against the market maker. The market maker has got an edge. It's very slim. It's very narrow. Most market makers pretend they haven't because they don't like to... Um, they like to make out that it's as hard as possible. And in certain markets where it's really tight and commoditized, that, that edge has almost disappeared. 
So the sort of major foreign exchange markets and some of the major uh, liquid commodity markets. Um, but there is an edge being a market maker. So now if we take that back to trading, we can choose two approaches. We can choose to try and play a market maker style, you know, which is what a lot of prop traders do in mm -hmm. firms. Um, they're adding value to the market, in effect. Okay, they're market making and they're trying to generate the positive edge from being the market the market maker. They're trying to accumulate that edge. And it's a different style of trading. You've got to be in the market all the time. You've got to be constantly playing the game, long, short, in, out, very aggressive size. Now, you think about the casino, they're in the market all the time. Yeah, They want as much footfall as possible. They need as much footfall as possible mm. because their costs are high. Yeah. They've got to clear their cost level. Okay, and that creates a very different game, a very different way of playing the game to the other side where effectively you're using a strategy which is akin to card counting, which yeah. is not playing all the time, playing sporadically and loading up on your bets when you've got what you consider a favorable setup, yeah. a favorable situation, and where you can assess the likelihood of, of, of a win um, versus a loss. And then in those ones... You cut quickly when you're wrong. You get out straight away when you're wrong, but you run it when you're right. Hence, when you have that sort of player, which is the other side to the table, mm. mindset, you try to run your profits and you cut your losses short. Ironically, on the house game, when you play that, you do the other one, okay? You actually take your profits when you get them quite regularly, yeah. okay? Depending on the mathematical equation of your profits to losses. And generally, sometimes you let your profits run a little bit because you're playing a bit of a mean reversion game, okay? Right. You're, you're hoping that it comes back. So it's a completely different mindset. Now, what if we go back to this story, um, which you read at the very beginning of this article about um, Yumiko? She was caught between playing the two. She suddenly went to this call to call the market from 102 to 120 and try and play it like a player. Yeah. Her natural instincts were to play the house game. That's how she makes her money. Mm. She was doing the wrong strategy and playing the wrong game for her. Yeah. And even though she made the call right, that wasn't her game to play like that. Her game yeah. was to trade in and around the market. Mm -hmm. And we all do that in trading. I did it for many years. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know I was doing it. So you have to know, am I here to call the market or am I here to play the game? You, you you see a trade that I talk about all the way through the book mm. when I'm explaining the, the framework of the process cycle. That's a great example of that trade. I had a big fundamental view that yields were going lower, and yet I made the money being the other way around on that trade. Okay? Right. All right. That, complete, that trade was completely against my fundamental view. Okay? And it was actually when I actually tried to sort of marry the trade with a fundamental view. That's when I had the first bit of difficulty with that trade. And it doesn't mean don't have a fundamental view. You have to have a fundamental view of the market, I believe. You also have another way. You look at sentiment, you look at technicals, or you might be systematic. It's great to have an overall view of the money, but you have to know your game. Yeah. Okay? And that's the whole point about this. It's Trading is not just trading. It's knowing what is the game of trading that I'm playing. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. And in the book, you mentioned, I mean, the, the difference between this house approach, which is very much um, sort of small, well, it's 
taking small gains, banking quick profits, um, and being very active in the market versus the player approach, which is somewhat less active, potentially taking longer term views, allowing trades to play out. You know, your your ideally in the player approach, your winners should be bigger, a lot bigger than your losers. And um, and whereas that when you're playing the house approach, you're 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 going to have a lot of small winners um, and a lot of small losers, but it, yeah, but a couple of potentially sometimes some slightly bigger losers as well. Um, so it's a very different style. Uh, but you also mentioned in the book that it's very difficult to actually operate a hybrid of these two, and that very few traders you've come across successfully manage to operate a hybrid between the player approach and the and, and the house approach, yeah? Yeah, in theory, it's very difficult to do it. Yeah. But I think there are some people who have managed to master it, but they've been doing it for many years. Yeah, the experienced um, ones, yeah. Yeah, there are exceptions to it. Mm. Um, but I, I like to believe that it's impossible to do that. I think everyone leans on one or the other. Yeah. But there's always exceptions. There's, there's you know, it's very hard to be pure to both of them. Mm. Okay, so as a trader, I was very much of the player approach. And by the way, I don't think either of them are superior or inferior. Right. They're just two different ways of playing the game. Okay, but I lean towards a player approach. That I was much more comfortable with. That um, I'd adopted that philosophy early in my career. So it's really important to know what your philosophy is to trading mm. as well. Yeah, I adopted that philosophical approach early in my career. Um, but I was doing it in a house approach business mm. where they wanted everyone to be doing or mostly to be doing the house approach. Not that they used that terminology. Yeah. So it was a bit of a battle in my early years and it, 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 it was quite challenging. Um, on the same thing, I did do the house approach on the side. And what I mean by that is when the player approach wasn't working, mm. I still needed to be in the market. I still didn't need to be immersed in the market, incensed in the market, feel in the market, okay, mm -hmm. looking for trades. So I'd be using the house approach to be constantly in the market. Right. And I'd be trying to, in a way, not really, you know, I'd like to have made money using it, but I, I just more or less, it kept me ready for when the player approach trades came. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a sense of what was happening, a feel. Um, and... Hopefully, I, I wouldn't have been losing or maybe I'd be making a bit of money whilst I was waiting for the big ones to come along. Right. Likewise, it, the, the, there's house approach traders, I know, who do see something big and they want to go after it and they'll set a player approach trade. The problem is they get into a mess, a bit like Yamiko, is they then take their profit when they've got a lot on board. Um and I have worked with a few to kind of almost separate those trades out into a completely separate book. Yeah. They look at them at, different at a different time and a different place. But it's it's just really hard to play both sides of the table together. Mm. Most people do play both sides of the table in their career. They usually start off trading a house style. Right. And then they move over to trade a player later in their career. Not everyone. Some people spend their whole career in the house style some of the best prop, you know, traders in hedge funds, even partners in hedge funds have just mastered the house style and, and absolutely smash it doing it that way. Right. And I, I have actually had people who do that, who sort of have said, I want to learn the player style, even though they don't use that language. Yes. You know, so I want to learn 
a longer term style of trading. And I'm like, you've been doing it 30 years and you're a genius and you make a fortune doing the house approach. Why would you want to change something that goes so deep into you? Yeah. You're only going to struggle and you'll be throwing away the goose that lays the golden egg. Yeah. And and, and they they abandon any ideas to sort of become a player and they become even better at doing the house. And, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, so it's, it's really getting to know which one you're doing and how to do it. Okay. The job isn't predicting the markets. The job is making money out of the markets. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's a big part of the philosophy in the book as well. Mm, absolutely. It is. All right, Steve. We've we've probably run out of time, I think, for the the length that we've got for this podcast. So I'm going to wrap it up there. I think that we've covered quite a bit. Um, and just to the listeners, I mean, and those watching it, you can see the book on your screen and we'll put it in the artwork for the podcast as well. Mastering the Mental Game of Trading by Stephen Goldstein. Um, congratulations on the book. It's it's, it's really, really good. It's different to anything else I've ever read. And as I say, this is one of the books that I think is going to become a, a book that I read many times during the rest of my trading career. So well done. And um, and thanks, Stephen, for your time, for coming back onto Talking With Traders for the third time, actually. We it's have, great. I love, yeah. I love your podcast. I love your work you do. And I know you've got a great audience that's deeply engaged with it out there. Yeah, thank so, you. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And likewise, I mean, listeners, um, you've got your own podcast, Stephen, the Alpha Mind podcast, yeah, which yeah. With, which you do with Mark Randall. And if if listeners to this podcast have not listened to yours, they should absolutely go and listen to to your podcasts because they're they're also fantastic and got some very especially very the good episode guests. with Garth McKenzie. Tell them to go and listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Yeah, so we've been guests on each other's podcasts, which is great. But um, yeah. but yeah, Stephen, re- always respect your work and and love your podcast as well. Thank you for coming on this this one. And uh, yeah, Thank we'll you. catch up again soon. Terrific. Thank you very much, Garth. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.